The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Because our, our text this morning is actually a really simple text. And uh, as we look at this, it's going to be three parts. Just going to let you know where we're going right up front, okay? Uh, it starts with a command for us personally. We see that in verses 1 and 2. We're then taken to Christ's example in verse 3. And then finally, we're, giving a, we're given a commission for us collectively, verses 4 through 7. So uh, if, if you want to zoom out and just look at where we're going, just on an outline level, we're going to be looking at the command, the Christ, and the commission as we walk through this text in these first seven verses. Um, and, and as we spend time with each of these, another thing I'll just give you right up front, I will be spending more time in number two. So we're going to be spending a little more time looking at, at the bulk, looking at Christ, because it is only from and through Christ that the command and the commission make sense and are possible. So we are going to be looking at these three parts. We're going to be camped a little bit longer in part number two. That's where we're headed. And so I want to begin with number one, number one, which is this command to you, this personal command to you. Um, so I want you to remember as we get to this, though, um, Paul has been talking about how we can live together, how we can um, do life together when we're so different and when we can't see eye to eye on certain things and when we're, we um, have different issues of conscience and we're diverse and how can we be unified in that? Paul's been talking us through that and what we've seen in the ancient Roman church is they were trying to deal with these differences and and. We, we looked here, in, especially in chapter 14, that these differences went deep. They went deep. And, and we saw this strong language all throughout chapter 14 of, um, and I want to pull this out, of stronger and weaker. You have the stronger brother, you have the weaker brother. You have um, the stronger and the weaker together uh, meant to be mutually upbuilding each other. And so we see this in this text. And so... What we, what we see when we see when we think about this weaker and stronger, just to put some definition on this, so in issues of conscience, the weaker brother or sister is the one whose conscience is pricked more easily on these issues of conscience. Um, again, we're not talking areas of sin or evil or righteousness. We're not talking about what God's word has clearly stated for us. Remember in this text, we're talking about religious dietary code and holidays, right? So we're talking about issues of conscience. And so the weaker brother or sister in this text is the brother or sisters whose conscience is pricked more easily. On the flip side, the stronger brother's conscience is not. And, and I want to remind you again, Paul here is not condemning the weaker brother, telling the weaker brothers, hey, get with it. Stop being weak. Get stronger. Stop. Your conscience is broke. Fix it. He hasn't been saying any of that. Instead, what he has been doing is, is, is encouraging the church to come together in the midst of that diversity 
and to be the church. So he's not trying to convince the weaker brother that you're wrong, you need to grow up. He's, he's convincing us together that we should come together as, as the church. And if you remember, even in the, the words of verse 19 of last chapter, he says, so then let us pursue um, what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. He's calling us to come together. Well, this morning, as we look at 15, we're going to take it one step further, and he's going to get a little bit more direct. And, and, and again, we're not seeing Paul here condemning the weaker. In fact, in our text today, he's going to talk directly to the stronger, to the stronger brother. And what does he say? Well, verses 1 and 2, he says, again, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. So he says, we who are strong have what? Have an obligation. What is an obligation? An obligation is a responsibility. It is a requirement, a duty, a moral imperative. It's that non-negotiable thing. You're obligated. Paul says, you who are strong have an obligation, a God-given, non-negotiable task. And what task is that? Well, your task is to bear with their failings. To bear with their failings. And so this first part, this personal command is this. Strong, bear with their failings. And I want to make this personal. And to do that, we got to ask two questions. Who are you and who are they? Who are you and who are they? First, who are you? When I read this, who did you associate with? When I read this, who did you associate with? The weaker or the stronger? I think that naturally, many of you are going to associate and see yourself, see as, as though Paul is talking to you as the stronger brother. You're going to see yourself as the stronger um, one, because you don't like to be called weak, so not weak, I'm strong. Um, but I think there's this natural inclination to say, I, I'm the stronger, Paul's talking to me. Um, especially if you've been following Jesus for many years. It's kind of embarrassing to say, I'm the weaker. So maybe you push against that, and, and without even realizing it, you associate with the strong because it's embarrassing to be that weak one. Um, so maybe that's going on. But for others of you, you might have read yourself into this text as the weak. You might see yourself as the weaker brother and sister. But I want us, regardless of who you are and who you saw yourself to be as we read this, there is a messiness in this. And here's my proposal to you. These categories are not that clean. And here's my proposal to you. You will often change categories. In one thing... You are going to be that strong brother over here. And another thing, you are going to be over here as the weak brother. It's a little bit messy. It's not as fixed. And the truth is, is that you are often both. You're both the stronger in, other, in some things and weaker in others. And this is why this text is so important. So when I asked, who are you? Here's my, here's my hope. I propose to you, church, that, that you are both. <laughs> that you are both the stronger and the, the weaker. That Paul is talking to you is what I'm getting at here. 
Regardless of how you see yourself, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Paul is talking to you. At times you are the strong doing the bearing. And at times you are the weak needing someone to bear with you. So when I, the reason I start here is because I want to do my best to not let us do uh, conviction offloading. And, and what, I'm, what I mean by that is when, I, when you read this and say, okay, cool, not for me though. It's for, the, it's for the, those, those people over there. Hearing, um, this text is for you, depending on the situation you're in. And, and my, my heart behind this is that we need to know two things. We need to know how to glorify God as the weaker brother or sister at times. We need to allow others to help bear our burden. We need to know what it's like to be the weaker brother and not have to run away and hide and feel shame and retreat. We need to know how to glorify God as the weaker brother. And at the same time, we need to know how to glorify God with the weaker brother as the stronger brother to help bear their load, to not run, to not shame them, but to bear with them, to bear with them and to glorify God in that. So the first question is, who are you? Are you the stronger? Are you the weaker? The answer, yes. Second question is, who are they? You're called to bear with them. Who are they? Who are they? This one is an easy one. I want us to pause and just look around. If we look around this room, these are they. If we think about the people in your community group, the people in this room, the people in your church community, the people who we stood in line with to go to the communion table, these are they. These are they. And I want to make a proposal. First and foremost, this text, when I, when I ask who are they, is your local church. Stone Oak Bible Church. If this is your home church, it's here. We are the they. Secondarily to that is the global church. Our brothers and sisters around the globe who are following and serving Jesus, uh, we are increasingly global we are engaged globally in the global church more than ever. But I did say secondarily global. And the reason I said that is because God has made you and placed you in a local context. In a local context called the church. You are meant to know and be known in a local congregation. And if we don't know how to do this locally in this room. We have no chance to do this globally. It does not make sense. We are called here first and foremost. We are them. So when I ask, who are they? Who are the ones you are called to bear with? It's me. You're called to bear with me. You're called to bear with people in this room. You're called to bear together with us in all of our failings. That is our call. It says we have the, who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. 
Your call is not to live to please yourself, but to please them, to build them up. So your call is not to live a selfish, self-centered, self-focused, self-referenced life. But to live to God and others, God-referenced and others-centered. That is your call. That you would live to please the people in this room. We'll continue to put skin on that. More than yourself. More than yourself. And how beautiful is this, but how hard and messy. It is so much easier to leave. It is so much easier to go somewhere else, to go to another church, to try to hide. I, I, this might hurt. I'm, okay, I'm going to say it anyway. Um, how many of us, please don't raise your hand, have chosen a church, picked a church that you can go to with the explicit purpose of hiding? Where I can go, and I can be fed, and I can hightail it out, and no one has to know how messy I am. And I don't know how, need to know how messy they are. I can get it and leave. I, I look at this, and I look at the, If you do not step in and, and you don't know and be known in your, in your church family, I can say with full confidence in this, you are shortchanging the Christian life. You are not meant to be a lone ranger. You are not meant to be this way. And I can say in complete confidence in Scripture that that is not God's will for your life. If you come up to me and say, is this God's will? My answer is no, and I don't even need to know you. It's not God's will for your life to run and hide. God has shown us a better way, and it's to bear with each other in love. To live to please them over me. And so this first part is a personal command to you and to me. And as I've sat with this text and, and I've studied this, I, I, I really feel like I can boil this command down to three words. So command number one to you, I feel like it is accurate to boil it all down to three words. Don't be selfish. Don't be selfish, self-referenced, self-centered, self-focused, placing your personal preferences and gratification over the people in this room and in your group and in your community. Instead, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of each other, the weak brother or sister in your life, in your church, in your row, in your community group. That is your obligation, your God-given responsibility to bear with them and not leave them. To give your life, not simply to please yourself, but to build them up. That's your obligation. That's your command. That's the easy part, right? Don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. There is a better way, and that is the way of Jesus, which moves us so perfectly into part two. Let's look to Jesus. Let's look to Christ here. Read this with me again, verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. I want to unpack this together. Um, 
First of all, we know, we've talked about this all through, especially chapter 14, that Christ did not live to get, get what's his and to please himself. We've looked at what Philippians 2 said, where he empties himself, takes the form of a servant, and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. We see that. We, we look at Mark 10, 45, that says he didn't come to serve himself, but to serve those who were in need. Or 2 Corinthians um, 8, that, that says, though he was rich, he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich, right? We see this in Scripture, and we see that Christ demonstrates what love is in the perfect love in the Father and perfect love for neighbor. But this text is going to take us a little bit deeper and um, help us see this a little bit. So, so here Paul is quoting something. It says, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. This is a quote. This is actually a quote from Psalm 69. Um, Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is a psalm of David. And um, it's a really interesting psalm. It's a, it's a psalm where David is suffering. And he's suffering at the hands of the enemies of God and he's suffering because of some sin. And, and we, we read, I'm not going to read all this, but I'll just read a little bit. Um, verse 5, Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. Talk about that sin again, oh God of hosts. Let not those who seek to... Uh, seek you be brought to dishonor because of me or through me, O God of Israel, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face, that I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. So here, I could read more, but you get the point. David is suffering here, and he's suffering here because of some sin. And here's the interesting part. In the midst of that, in the midst of that suffering, David refuses to separate himself from God or the temple and instead, he is seen here in this psalm choosing to identify God with his, in his suffering. He's coming to God in the midst of his suffering rather than identifying with those who are persecuting him. It's a heartfelt psalm. I love the psalms. And here's the thing. So did the early church. And what we see all throughout the New Testament especially is that one of the things that the early church did is they would read the psalms, take the psalms, meditate on the psalms, and they would see Jesus in the psalms especially the king psalms. Um, they would see these psalms as kind of foreshadowing Jesus. And, and we see this with so many psalms, but this psalm, Psalm 69, is the second most quoted psalm in reference to Jesus in all of the New Testament. Um, second only, just in case you're a nerd, uh, to Psalm 22. But Psalm 69 is quoted and it's quoted here in, in Romans 15, and, and specifically here, Psalm 69 is quoted um, in verse 9. In the whole verse, let's just read the whole verse together, says, For zeal for your, father's for your father's house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. Now, real quickly, one thing I want to point out is this psalm's already been quoted about, about Jesus by the disciples. You don't have to answer me, but can you think of when? Can you think of when the disciples thought, for zeal of your father's house have consumed me, applied to Jesus? Well, it's John 2, 17, when Jesus was flipping some tables and cleansing the temple. 
He was just, you know, rebuking people for what they had done to his temple, his house, this holy rage monster kind of thing that we have. And the the disciples seeing what Jesus was doing in the temple. In verse 17 of John 2, they said his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your father's house will consume them. And all of a sudden, Psalm 69, they saw Jesus in it. And I saw what he was doing. And, and what I love here is that Paul is going to apply not the first part, but the second part of this verse to Jesus, showing that Jesus is far more concerned to do the will of the Father than he is to please himself. And, and there's something else here, and I want to really rest in this. Jesus stands in the gap. Jesus stands in the gap. Um, this has really stopped me in my tracks this week. Jesus stands in the gap. I could not get past this. Think about Jesus in light of this psalm, that the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. You don't have to turn with me here, um, but I want you to think about one other place in Scripture, and that is the book of Job. And uh, Job is a really old book. It's one of the oldest books we have in our Bible. If you're not familiar with Job's story, it was a man who endured so much, so much suffering. He was a blessed man. Scripture says he was a righteous man. And yet God, in his sovereignty, allows Job to suffer. To go through so much, and in a short period of time, Job loses everything short of his life. And yet we read in Job that that Job remains faithful to God. And the bulk of the book of Job is spent, after Job goes through all the suffering in the first couple chapters, like 40 chapters, are dedicated to Job having conversations with his friends, saying, what on earth happened? They're just talking about how this could happen. What could possibly this mean? How could this happen? Why did this happen? And through all of it, they are just falling hugely short because at the end of their rant, their 40-chapter poetic rant, at the very end, God speaks. And in the book of Job, you have for 40 chapters them saying, God, where were you? How could you let this happen? Where were you? In the final chapter, God looks at Job and his friends and says, where were you when I created the world and everything in it? Tell me if you think you know. Where were you? And what I love about Job, I don't love this. I actually really don't like this about Job. He's not given an answer. Ever. He says, God, why? And God says, I am God. And Job snaps, and the book ends with his friends worshiping God with none of their wise answers. So Job's story reminds us of so much. It reminds us that he is God, he is sovereign over all things that we're not going to always get. The tidy, clean answers to all the things that we want tidy, clean answers for. But I want to highlight something Job says because it is profound. Um, in, in Job, in the midst of his hurting and his pain, in Job chapter 9, he says in verse 32, for he, that is God, talking about God, for he is not a man as I am, that, he might, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together to work this out, right? And then he says in verse 33, Job 9:33, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on both of us. What is Job crying out for in this text in the middle of his 
Job is crying out in pain, knowing he is not God, knowing God is God, he is not, and what he recognizes is there is a gap here. And oh, if there is some way, some bridge to bridge that gap. He recognizes his need for a mediator. This is huge because in his moment of suffering, he recognizes his, 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 he recognizes his need for a mediator, someone to stand in the gap. Someone to stand in that gap, to lay one hand over here with, with him, to lay one hand over here with God, to be that mediator, to, be, to bridge that, that gap. Church, <laughs> he was crying out for Jesus. This is Jesus. This bridge is Jesus. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. What is this? This is mediator language. This is bridge language. This is arbiter language. This is about the one who stands in the gap. And I want, I want to share what, um, what R.C. Sproul says about this. I want you to listen to this. He says, the supreme example for us of godly living, being concerned with the other person, of exercising charity toward those with whom we disagree, is Jesus. He says, Jesus stood between hostile parties as a mediator, and he absorbed an unbelievable amount of insult, slander, and vicious attacks. He stands in the gap. He stands between. And listen to how Sproul continues. He says, none of the things that Jesus was accused of were legitimate. He was without sin. Every time he was criticized, every time he was attacked, he was attacked unjustly. No one ever had the right to insult Jesus, but he absorbed all of that hostility, all of that anger, all of those insults as the lamb who was being led to slaughter. Church, Jesus stood in the gap for you, took all your sin, all your shame, all that separates you from the holy God who is God. Stood in the gap. He gives you his perfection. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 18, 19, um, that, that knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, that's not how you were ransomed, but verse 19 says, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Bridge. Bridge. Jesus is the one, because of his great love for you, who stood in the gap for you. Christ stood in the gap for you, church. Christ stands in the gap for you now, right now, for you. And here's the thing about the Christian life, and, and I think this is missed sometimes. Um, the longer you follow Jesus, the longer you follow Jesus, the longer you walk with Jesus, the more and more and more you understand how massive the gap is. I think there's this, this assumption that the longer you spend time with Jesus, the longer you know Jesus, the longer you follow Jesus, that you're kind of making traction on that gap, bringing that gap closer. That is not true. In fact, it's the opposite. 
It's not that your gap is getting bigger. No. But what happens is the longer you spend time with Jesus and walk with Jesus, the more awareness you have of how massive the gap is that Christ bridges on your behalf. Your awareness of the gap just increases all the more. And what happens is grace becomes bigger. You'd expect the longer you follow Jesus, the less you need grace. That is not true. The longer you follow Jesus, the more awareness of God's grace you have. It grows and multiplies as we grow in the Christian life. We grow in our awareness of Jesus as our mediator, as the one who bridges. Reminds me of this song uh, called Living Hope. We, we sing it here, but he says, How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. And for anyone who has not responded to the gospel, for anyone who has not trusted Jesus as the bridge, the one who bridges the gap to save you, we have to start here. We have to start here. You do not clean yourself up. You do not fix yourself. You do not get yourself in a good place first. The, the gospel is not for those who are really good at cleaning themselves up. The gospel is not for those who do not need the grace of God. The gospel is for those who need the grace of God. The good news is that Jesus saves, and the good news is that his work on the cross for you is finished, and the good news is that you have someone who goes like this and bridges the gap. That is the gospel, and that is the good news, and you did not earn it. It is by faith that you have a bridge. And so this morning, the invitation for you is to respond. To, to say, Jesus, I trust you and you alone, would you forgive me of my sins and would you be my Lord and my Savior? And scripture says that when we, as we do that, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to save us, to make us new, that the old is gone and that we are adopted and belong in his family. Trust Jesus this morning. And for those who have trusted Jesus, I want to I want to challenge you with something. Um, don't miss what Paul is doing here. Uh, Paul is, is calling you here to be like Jesus. Just as Jesus stood in the gap for you, just as Jesus bore with your weaknesses and failings, just as Jesus met you where you are and where you were, just as Jesus did that for you, Paul is saying, look to Jesus Follow Jesus and meet your brothers and sisters where they are. You are called to be a bridge. To look to Jesus and to stand in the gap for them. To not think of yourself first. To not live a self-referenced, self-centered life where it's all about me, 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 me. To not do that. But to look to Jesus, to follow Jesus, and to be the gap to be like Christ. That's the call. And, and it leads us to the third and final section of this. So we had the, the command to you personally. Then we, we saw Christ in this scripture. And the third part is the commission to us collectively as the church. 
Verses 4 and 7 serve a little bit like a benediction to this section, actually. Um, If you look at this, it says, For whatever was written, verse 4, in the former days was written for for our instruction, that through endurance, through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Paul is referencing back here, he says, for whatever was written in the former days. This is a reference to the Old Testament. This is a reference to scripture. More than that, this is 2 Timothy 3.16 that says, for all scripture... Is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness? This is what he's pointing to. He's saying that everything was written, was given to you for instruction and endurance and encouragement and, and hope. Everything we walk through, everything we see here, this is given to you for your instruction. And I want to apply this, given to you for endurance when you want to quit. This is given to you for encouragement when you feel discouraged. And that this is given to you for hope when you feel despair. God gave you this to instruct you, strengthen you, to endure, encourage you, and to give you hope because this is his word. And this is why Paul says, verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement. So in other words, God God gives you his word to encourage you and to, to, to give you endurance Because he is a God of endurance and encouragement, and this is his word. So he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. There is this commission here, and and, um, before I really unpack the commission, I want to remind you that commissions come with promises. If you think of the Great Commission, we think of go, make disciples, Teach them, baptize them, in the name of Jesus. Commission, right? Commission language. That's your command. That's our go. That's our charge. But notice, it came with a promise, because what did it say? It said, lo, I am with you always. All power is given to me. (laughs) There is a promise to this commission. Well, this commission that we're talking about today also comes with a promise to live in harmony with each other, to love each other, but it comes with this promise that the God of endurance and encouragement will grant this to you, will be with us in the commissioning. And so, as a result, like, church, what would happen if we here at Stone Oak Bible lived out Romans 14 and 15? What would happen if we loved each other well, laid down our rights and privileges? What would happen? Well, verse 6 would happen. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, when we do this, when we do this, we will be a powerful gospel proclamation to our community. That's what we will be. And, And the world will know us, will know that we are his because of our love for one another. Jesus has already told us this. It will be a gospel presentation. We will glorify him. With one voice. And so, so here, let's bring this together. So you have a command to you on a personal level. And that is that you bear with the failings of the weak brothers and sisters in your life. In your group, in your row, in your church. You bear with them. That's yours. That's your, that's your command this morning. Second thing is we looked, as we looked at this command, we saw Jesus who bared with your failings and your weaknesses, who stepped into the gap for you, and, Christ, and Paul here is calling us both to look to, 
to Jesus, but also to follow his example and to stand in the gap for others. And this leads us to the commission. Here's our commission from our text. Such a great way to push the pause button on Romans. Here's our commission. Verse 7, therefore, meaning because of all of that, because all that's true, because of Christ, because of our command to love each other, therefore, he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has loved you for the glory of God. I want to do this one more time. I won't make you do this again. Look around. Look around the room. Everyone here, everyone who walks through the doors, every brother and sister, even the difficult ones, everyone in front of you, everyone behind you, everyone to the left and to the right, everyone who is here and everyone who is not here this morning, they're not off the hook. Everyone, here's our commission, welcome them, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's our commission. 